It was a bad decision at Davenport University's recent graduation ceremony. One of the graduating students named Robert Jeffrey Blank decided that after he received his diploma, he wanted to do a backflip. It was a bad decision. He didn't make it all the way around. And he face-planted there on the stage to the gasp of the audience. And in this world in which we live, it was all caught on video. And then it went viral. And it's all over the internet, this guy doing this backflip and absolutely wiping out. It was a bad decision. Well, did you know that our life consists of the decisions that we make? And so we want to make good decisions. And we need God's help to make good decisions. And we need God's intervention when we make bad decisions. And thinking about that this morning, I want us to look in Joshua chapter 9, where we will see the importance of decision making. Joshua Chapter 9, we'll begin reading in verse 1, Joshua chapter 9, verse 1. I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word, which is truth with no mixture of error. Joshua chapter 9, verse 1. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes and all their provisions were dry and crumbly, and they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your Servants, come now, make a covenant with us. Here's our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day. We set out to come to you, but now behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst, and these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live 
And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We are here to exalt you. We are here to worship you. We are here, Lord, to be changed by you. And Lord, we pray that you would move in our midst by your Holy Spirit. Spirit of God, would you open the eyes of our hearts that we would understand your word and encourage us, inspire us, challenge us, change us for your glory. May we see in our text this morning in in this sermon the glory of your great name. May Jesus be exalted. May we celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ today. And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The context of this passage is found in verses 1 and 2 when it says, As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan and the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. Heard of what? They heard of Israel's uh, defeat of Jericho and Ai. They heard of this advancing Israel army. And it says they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. So as the kings and the people living in the land hear of this advancing Hebrew army, they begin to make plans to deal with this threat. One way to deal with this threat was through alliance. And we see there in uh, verses uh, 1 and 2 that they gather together. These different uh, city-states gather together to build a large army so they can stand against Joshua and the Israelite people. But there was another way to deal with the threat of the Hebrew army, and that is through deception. Verse 3, it says, When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended. These people, Gibeon, who by the way were about 25 miles from where the Israelites were at this time, decided if we're going to escape being decimated by the Hebrew people, if we're going to escape this coming army, then we've got to trick them. We've got to use cunning and deception and make them think that we're a people from a long way away so they don't destroy us because we are living in the promised land. And so they use deception to come against the, the Hebrew people. And we see that when Joshua and the other elders of Israel are faced with a decision, what should we do with these people who say they have come from a long distance, they do not inquire of the Lord. And we see they make a bad decision in this text. And so what we see emerge in Joshua chapter 9 uh, are three uh, aspects or three uh, three headings of decision making that I want you to see. Three aspects of decision making in our text. We're going to learn from Joshua uh, what it means to make godly decisions. Here's the the first aspect of decision making we see in the text. You ready? It is dangerous to leave God out of decision making. It is dangerous to leave God out of decision making. Verse fourteen it says. So the men took some of their provisions there in examining what these people are telling them, the Gibeonites, and it says there, but did not ask counsel 
from the Lord, and then Joshua made peace with them and a covenant with them. We see here Joshua and the leaders leave God out of decision making. Now, that word there in verse 14 when it says they did not ask counsel from the Lord, that word counsel is literally the Hebrew word mouth. It could read they did not inquire from the mouth of Yahweh. They did did not inquire from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, they didn't care to know what God had to say. They just made their own decision. And because they did not want to hear from the mouth of the Lord, they make a poor decision. Now, they didn't care to know what God said, but they could have known what God said. Now, hold your place, but look up with me over in Numbers chapter 27. I want you to see the provision God made for Joshua and the leaders to hear from him. Numbers chapter 27, verse 21 Speaking of Joshua as the leader who would succeed Moses, it says, And he shall stand before Eleazar, the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and his word they shall come in, both he and all the people. So the high priest had a a Urim and a Thum and these stones, which they used to determine God's direction. And the Lord said, uh, listen, when Joshua needs to make a decision... So bring the high priest in and ask the high priest, I will speak through the high priest to tell him what to do. So they could have known what God thought about the situation. The the provision was there for them to hear from God. So they could have known and they should have inquired. Look what it says over in Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34, I want you to see what God says about their time in the promised land when he would bring them in. Exodus 34 Verse 12. Actually, back to verse 11. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, the Jebusites, some of the same people we just read about. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. So God told them, when you go into the promised land, be very careful that you don't make a covenant with people who are living there. So Joshua, based upon that commandment of God, should have been very, very careful about entering into a covenant with any people uh, because they could have been the wrong people to enter into a covenant with. And so they did not care to know what God had to say, even though they could have and they should have. Dale Ralph Davis says, Yahweh's direction was available but was ignored. And what does that mean for us? Well, I believe this chapter, Joshua 9, serves as a warning for God's people. And I want to answer this question. Why is it dangerous for you and for me to leave God out of our decision making? Let me give you a couple of reasons why it's dangerous to just make decisions without the Lord's input. Number one, things are not always what they seem. Things aren't always what they seem. When when you and I make decisions, a lot of times we make decisions based upon what we see, but you understand, don't you, things aren't always what they seem. And that's what happens here. The Gibeonites go through this ruse. They they prepare uh, provisions that look old and and food that looks dry and crumbly and and clothes like they're worn out. And they try to deceive the Israelites into thinking, we have traveled from a far country. And really, they'd come from about 
South Haven to, to, to Hernando. It wasn't a very long trek at all, but they're trying to make them think they came from a far country. So it looked like, from their perspective, it looked like that these people were from a far country, but things are not always what they seem. Uh, maybe that's why the Bible says over in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, that you and I are not to lean on our own understanding. Because sometimes when we try to make wise, godly decisions or make decisions, things aren't what they seem. And there will always be a temptation for you and for me to live by sight and not by faith. To make decisions based upon what we see and understand, not based upon what God thinks. And there will always be the temptation. Uh, I like to think of myself as kind of rational. I like to look at the situation. I'm a, I'm a processor decision maker. I like to look at what I see and then think about it and chew on it and mull over it before I make a decision. And, and if I'm not careful, I'm often making decisions based upon what looks logical or rational or what makes sense or what feels right as I've processed it. And, and if I'm not careful, I can find myself making decisions where God is not involved. How about you? You ever done that? I've made some decisions where God was simply not involved. And it is a dangerous thing to do. Sidlow Baxter writes, So clever was the disguise, so reasonable the story, so reverential the reference to Jehovah, so pitiable their plight that Israel's compassion overflowed. So one of the reasons it's very dangerous to make decisions without God's input is because things are not always what they appear to be. But there's a second reason it's dangerous to make decisions without the Lord. We cannot possibly comprehend the far-reaching implications of our decisions. When we make a decision, there's no way in our finite, limited understanding that we can understand how that decision will carry with it implications into the future. And because that's a big deal, and our decision-making can have repercussions, we ought to be very careful when we make decisions, right? We ought to bring God into the process. Now, here's what's interesting. Almost 500 years later, the effects of the decision that Joshua made here in this passage are, fe- are felt in Israel. Look, look with me over in 2 Samuel 21. Almost 500 years later, 2 Samuel 21. Second Samuel 21, verse 1, the Bible says, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. Three years of famine is serious, especially when you live in an agrarian society that depends on uh, the, the crops. So there's a famine for, for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. Lord, why are we experiencing famine? Look what it says in the next verse. The Lord said, or the next sentence, the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house. I'm punishing you you because something Saul did, your predecessor. What did Saul do? Because he had put the Gibeonites to death. So we don't know the exact uh, circumstances surrounding this story, but we do know that Joshua said in Joshua 9, you're safe with us. We will not harm you. I'm making a covenant with you. And they made a covenant to keep the Gibeonites safe, not to kill them. Well, Saul, at some point in his leadership of Israel, violated that covenant hundreds of years later. He killed some Gibeonites. 
And because Israel violated their covenant, God is sending famine. So this decision Joshua made hundreds of years later is still affecting folks. And there's no way Joshua could have known that. No way Joshua could have wrapped his mind and heart around that. Because he thinks it's just a quick little decision I need to make. He does not bring God into the equation. And the repercussions were still being felt hundreds of years down the road. And we see that for God to remove the famine from the land, they had to bring judgment upon Saul's household. It was a devastating judgment, a devastating time uh, in Israel. And it all goes back to this decision. And so we need to understand that our decisions, even the smallest of decisions, when we take matters into our own hands and we operate by sight and not by faith, we we ignore the counsel of the Lord. Our decisions can affect our lives and other people's lives for, for decades. That's serious business, isn't it? So we better ask God what he thinks. One of the most famous examples of this principle is found in the story of Abraham and Sarah. Remember, God made a a covenant with them, a promise. He said, I'm going to give you a son. And through your son, who would be Isaac, I will build a great people who will possess a land I will give them and who will eventually produce a Messiah who will be a savior for all the peoples on the face of the earth. Amazing covenant. Well, Abraham and Sarah hear the promise of God and nothing happens. And they're getting antsy because they're getting older. And they're thinking, well, we're not going to have a son. How's this going to come to pass? So they took matters into their own hands. They made a decision. Sarah said, here's my, here's my household servant. Go into her and she can give you a child. And so Abraham does that makes a a foolish decision, not based upon faith, but based upon sight, not based upon what the Lord had to say. And this this servant in Sarah's household has a son named Ishmael. And then God fulfills his promise like he always does and gives him a son named Isaac. And there's enmity in the household from early on. And did you know that the Arab-Israeli conflict that is going on today as we speak, can be traced all the way back to that decision that Abraham and Sarah made. Wow. We better be careful when we make decisions devoid of God's counsel because we can't understand the far-reaching implications of our decisions. And so, It is dangerous. It is dangerous not to factor in God's counsel in decision-making. Let me give you another principle about decision-making. We need biblical guidance for decision-making. We need biblical guidance for decision-making. So we say, well, if it's dangerous not to bring God into the decision-making process, then how do we make wise, godly decisions where we can hear from Him? Well, look in verse 14 of, of Joshua 9. It says, they did not... They did not uh, ask counsel from the Lord. So the opposite must be true. If we're going to make wise decisions, godly decisions, we need to to factor in God's counsel. Now let me give you uh, four ways that you and I are prone to make decisions. And we'll get back to how we make good decisions in just a moment. There, There are four different ways that you and I can make decisions in our lives. And I'm 
uh, I, I've done all four of these, okay? The first way we can make decisions is selfishly. Selfishly. In other words, we need to make a decision and we only ask ourselves, what's in it for me? What's best for me? How will this affect me? How will this bless me? And we make a selfish decision, not thinking about anybody else, not thinking about the Lord. We simply make it based upon what we want. And often that doesn't turn out very well. Secondly, we can make impulsive decisions. We can, we can make decisions impulsively. You ever made an impulsive decision? Kind of a spur of the moment, quick decision. You didn't ask the Lord. You just did what you thought was best. And, and in that, that spur of the moment, impulsive decision, you found yourself making a foolish decision. A third way we can make decisions is what I call hopefully. Hopefully. In other words, we make the decision in our own wisdom, but then we ask God to bless it. You ever been there? God, this is what I want to do. This is what I think the right thing is. I didn't ask you, but this is what I've chosen to do. Now, God, will you bless my decision? You ever been there? I've been there. I've been there. And that's the way we can operate. And it feels kind of spiritual because you're asking God to bless, but you didn't ask God on the front end. You made the decision. It's your decision for you to own, right? So we can make decisions selfishly and impulsively and hopefully. But here's the fourth way that I hope you and I will make decisions. Deliberately. Deliberately. Giving ourselves time to seek the Lord's face. Deliberately. Now, how do you make deliberate decisions? Well, first of all, you search the Word. You search the Word. One way, one sure way that you and I can always seek God's counsel is by opening up our Bibles. And, and most of the decisions that we make are right there in God's Word that can guide our decision-making. And the ones that aren't clearly spelled out in Scripture, there are principles in God's Word to guide us to make wise decisions. And so the Word of God is God speaking to us. When we open up our Bibles, we are literally seeking the counsel of the Lord. And when we have a decision to make, when we get into the Word, what does God have to say? We are saying, God, I care about your perspective. I care about your commandments. I care about your principles. And I want you to bring those to bear on this decision. Search the Word. Over in Psalm 119, 105, the Bible says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Some of you feel like you're walking in darkness, making foolish decisions because the lamp of the word of God is not shining in your life, showing you the way. Search the word. Know the word. Read your Bible. It's God speaking to you. By the way, I read this quote the other day. I think it's a great quote about the Bible. The Bible is the only book when you read it, the author's in the room with you. Amen? I like that. Author's in the room with you. I don't remember who said it, but it was good. Second step to deliberate decision-making, weigh options. Weigh options. Over in Proverbs chapter 15, listen to what the wise sayings of Proverbs say. Proverbs 15 verse 14 the heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feed on folly. So a wise person seeks to understand, seeks to get all the information. There are many times when I find myself at a position where I don't know the right decision to make, and I'm asking God, and I'm seeking his counsel, and it's still unclear, and, and the Lord shows me you need more information. 
Need more information. So we need to weigh our options, know what the decision truly entails. Third, ask for wisdom. One of the most neglected principles of God's word that would change our lives if we would practice it is found in James chapter 1, verse 5, and it's so simple. It says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask, and God will give it. Amen? Amen. That's amazing. And, and who doesn't need wisdom in this room? I mean, we all have important responsibilities and people that we're, that, that we're responsible for and, and, and their implications for our decisions. We all need wisdom. And the Lord says, if you, if you lack wisdom, ask. We need to ask God for wisdom. Number four, seek wise counsel. Proverbs 15 verse 22 says, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. One of the ways that God gives us direction is through wise, godly people around us that we can bounce things off of. And and, and through wise counsel, we can be guided to a, a good decision, a godly decision. Seek wise counsel. And then last, and this is very simple, ask God for his direction. The flip side of Joshua 9, they did not ask counsel. They did not want to know what the mouth of the Lord had to say. The, the flip side of that is ask God for his direction. First Samuel chapter 30, David's trying to determine if he should go after some raiders that raided his home. And should I go? And the Lord says, you should go. Will I have success? You have success. Go. He asked God what he thought. And God blessed that decision. We need to ask God for his direction. That means you're on your knees. The options, the counsel, the principles of God's word are just laid out before the Lord. And you say, Lord, would you show me? Would you show me what I need to do? What do you think? Should I do this? Should I not do this? Should I make the decision? Should I not make the decision? God, would you give me your guidance and ask God? Now listen to me. I've made a lot of bad decisions in my life. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you all of them because it's none of your business. <laughs> but I made a lot of bad decisions in my life. And you probably have too, right? Amen. Yeah. Now, I don't remember. Listen to me. I don't remember with those bad decisions I've made. I don't remember with any of them ever asking God what he thought. Every time I've stopped to ask God, it seems like it's turned out better. Simple principle. Now think about it. Can you th- remember a bad decision where you asked God for his input? Where you, where you were deliberate and slowed down and sought the word and sought counsel and asked God for wisdom and, and actually got on your knees and asked God for his direction. If we want to make good decisions, if we want to have biblical guidance, we need to do it deliberately. Not selfishly, impulsively, hopefully, but, but deliberately, which brings me to the third aspect of decision-making in this passage. We've talked about the, uh, the danger of leaving God out of decision-making. We've talked about the, the biblical guidance needed for good decision-making. But third and last, I want you to see this, and this is so important because I believe this is the main point of the text. God is sovereign and gracious in the midst of our decision-making. He's sovereign and gracious in the midst of our decision-making. I don't believe the main point of the text is to, is to cause us to be wise in our decision-making. There's a principle we can learn, obviously, but I believe that the main point of the text is how God responds to Joshua's foolish decision. 
And we see, even in the midst of a foolish decision, Joshua 9, that God is sovereign and gracious, which leads to this question. What do you do when you make an unwise decision? What do you do when you blow it? Anybody ever blown it? What do you do when you blow it? Well, we see here in Joshua 9 how you proceed when you blow it and make a bad decision. Number one, you seek forgiveness. When you, when you blow it, you, you seek forgiveness. We see at the end of this, this a chapter that they're continuing with the, the worship at the altar, which is the sacrificial system, which is meant to cover the sins of the people of Israel, pointing to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ coming to this earth and dying on the cross, shedding his blood for your sin and my sin. And so they're still practicing the ceremony for their sin. And that reminds us that when we make unwise decisions, when we blow it, we just need to say, God, I own this. It was foolish. I didn't ask you. Would you forgive me in this foolishness? Seek forgiveness. And then secondly, when you make a bad decision, exemplify faithfulness. Exemplify faithfulness. You know the old saying, two wrongs don't make a right? Well, Joshua made a bad decision, but he didn't make another bad decision. Look what it says. In verse 16 of Joshua chapter 9. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that he lived among them. They were just 20, 25 miles away. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shepharah, Baroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because... The leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. The people were thinking, we should be taking this city out. And now we can't in obedience to what God told us to do because our leaders made a bad decision. But notice, the leaders are honoring the covenant they made. In God's eyes, a covenant is serious business. And they're saying, we cannot violate this covenant. If we do, we're being unfaithful to the Gibeonites and unfaithful to the Lord. And we know how serious God is about the covenant because hundreds of years later, he sends a famine because someone broke the covenant. It's a big deal. And so Joshua here says, we're not going to violate our agreement. We're going to keep our word. And so after he makes a bad decision, he's exemplifying faithfulness. Two wrongs don't make a right. And they keep their covenant. But third, when you make an unwise decision, seek forgiveness, exemplify faithfulness, and then look for God's redemptive hand. Look for God's redemptive hand. Look what it says in verse 22. Joshua summoned them, the Gibeonites, just the leaders had said of them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Because it was told of your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, so we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do, uh, do, do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel. And they did not kill them. They kept the covenant. But Joshua made them that day 
cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Now, how does God redeem this foolish decision that Joshua makes? Well, there's a couple of pictures of God's grace in this text. First of all, the Gibeonites weren't, they weren't decimated. They weren't destroyed. God gave them a front row seat for temple worship. They were bringers of water and bringers of wood for the worship there at the altar where the sacrificial system was carried out. So God gave them a front row seat for this worship, which pictured redemption, the the shedding of blood for the redemption of sins. Instead of the Gibeonites being used by Satan to distract Israel from worshiping the one true God, and that was Satan's plan, God used them to enhance and preserve altar worship. You see what's happening there? I mean, this bad decision could have derailed Israel. They could have infiltrated and led the people astray, but the Gibeonites didn't do that. Instead of stopping them from worshiping the one true God, God uses the Gibeonites to enhance the worship of the one true God. He gives them a front row seat for worship. He used the Gibeonite people, listen to this, he used the Gibeonite people to point people to Jesus in his ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Isn't that cool? The Gibeonites were used to point people to Christ. Not only this, but it seems that the Gibeonites became believing members of the covenant community. They they believed in the God of Israel, the one true God. And how do we know this? Hundreds of years later, when God caused the kings to allow the Israelites to to leave captivity and go back to their homeland after they had been in Babylon in captivity for decades... When they go back, Nehemiah lists in Nehemiah 3, 7 and 7, 25, he lists that among the people of Israel returning to rebuild the walls were Gibeonites. Hundreds of years later, the Gibeonites are still right there with the Israelites. They're right there supporting them. I believe they were believing members of this covenant community, not Jews ethnically, but they were Jews by their faith in the one true God. And so... David Howard writes, they appear to have been fully assimilated among the Jews as much believers in Israel's God as was Rahab and other foreign converts as much and as much recipients of God's grace. So what do we see happening here? Joshua blows. He makes a bad decision. The Gibeonites are deceptive. This is a, a, an opportunity for, for, the, for Satan to use the Gibeonites to, to, to entrap the Hebrews in idol worship. It's a bad situation, but what does God do? He's sovereign, and he works it out for good, and even shows his grace in the midst of the bad decisions. David Jackman writes, I love this quote, This is the glory of Yahweh. He cannot be outmaneuvered by human cunning or hindered by human fallibility. Can I read that again? He cannot be outmaneuvered by human cunning or hindered by human fallibility. Amen? That glory is shown in the grace that can turn a curse into a blessing, that can use our mistakes and foolishness to bind us more closely than ever to him, that can reveal where we went wrong and make it become the means by which we can begin to go right. Only God of grace can do that. Neither the Gibeonites nor the Israelites came out of the story untainted, but the grace of God superabounds over all human sin and failure. Jackman writes, he is the hero of the story. 
when you read Joshua 9, don't just read, hey, these are some interesting insights into decision making. I hope you see in Joshua 9 the hero of the story. The God who is sovereign and the God who is gracious. The God who is in control. The God who cannot be outmaneuvered. The God who redeems our mistakes for His glory and our good. He is the hero of Joshua chapter 9. And aren't you glad that when we blow it, we have a sovereign and gracious God who picks us up, puts us on our feet, and helps us to move forward. That is what Joshua chapter 9 is ultimately all about. And so here's the point I want you to walk away with today. We need God's grace. We need God's grace for wise decision making. So that we don't blow it. So we make good decisions more than we make bad decisions. Godly decisions more than ungodly decisions. We, we need God's grace for that. We need God's counsel. We need God's wisdom. We need God's help. We need God's grace for wise decision making. And, coming real close, we need God's grace for decision making gone wrong. Because every single one of us in this room have blown it. And I'm glad that God's bigger. I'm glad that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. What a mighty, merciful God we serve.